0: Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. Americans will cast their votes in the 2020 presidential election in less than five months, drawing an unprecedented election cycle to a close. The year so far has tested the ability of campaigns to adapt and meet the moment as the nation continues to battle the COVID 19 global pandemic and grapple with recent protests. Drew Littman moderates a conversation with Al Motter and Brian McGuire to provide a full landscape analysis of the race as it currently stands and offer insight into how it may unfold in the coming months.
1: Welcome to another Brownstein podcast. Today we're going to talk about the 2020 presidential election. I'm Drew Littman, and I'm joined by my colleagues, Brian McGuire, who is Chief of Staff to Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and Al Motter, who is a member of Hillary Clinton's 2016 Presidential Campaign Finance Committee. Fellows, I'm going to jump right in and look at the current polls on this presidential race. According to Real Clear Politics, 60 general election polls have been taken in 2020. Joe Biden leads in 56 of them, Donald Trump leads in one, and the two candidates are tied in three polls. Al, does this accurately reflect the state of the race?
2: I think it does, Drew, although I would say that we're very early on in the race. I would liken it to being in the first or second inning of a baseball game and being up a run or two. That certainly doesn't mean you're going to win. And I would also note that an incumbent president in a reelection has a lot of inherent advantages uh, when running for president. That doesn't mean that he's not behind. He is behind. The polls are the polls, and the vice president is enjoying... Uh, a lead right now of some significance.
1: Brian, thoughts about
3: the current polls? Well, um, you know, I recall Hillary Clinton being ahead uh, by a similar rate during the polls that were taken early on in, um, in that race in 2016. And, you know, I think one of the most reliable figures in all of American politics is President Trump's approval rating. So nothing seems to shake it. And that's an incredible asset going into a general election, given how much the country has been through in the last several months to have that uh, approval rating kind of the floor that he enjoys on that approval rating, I think, is is a great asset he has.
1: Brian, let me stay with you and let's take a look back at the 2016 presidential race. In that race, Donald Trump drew a straight flush, winning Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, previously blue states in presidential elections, by a total of 77,764 votes. He won each of those three states by less than one percentage point. Can he pull off the same feat in 2020? Well, I think one of the things that people forget is
3: that Hillary Clinton picked up a few states that I think continue to be in play. So even if he did not run a draw a straight flush, which is challenging under any circumstance, there are still the states of Maine, New Hampshire, um, Nevada. And Minnesota, where the president could potentially play, and um, so yeah, I think you know he, he doesn't he doesn't appear to be out of the running in any of those states that you you enumerated. So it certainly could pull a pull it off again, but I think he's got other options as well, and that that doesn't need to be the model that he has to replicate this time around in order to succeed.
1: Now, let me ask you a related geographic question. Is there a Sunbelt play for Joe Biden if if the Rust Belt isn't the path to victory, or if, as Brian suggests, um, Trump could flip a state like Minnesota, is there an alternative path for, for Biden that runs through Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, maybe even Texas?
2: Texas is going to be a long shot, although Democrats aspire to win it. I think there is such a play, but it's not... The play you make right now. That's the play you make when you feel much more confident of victory and you're trying to expand the map and bring Senate candidates along with you. Joe Biden needs to focus on winning three states you mentioned that Hillary Clinton lost. And if he wins those, he's going to be president of the United States. Because if he can win those, the states that Brian mentioned as potentially going to Trump are less likely to do so. They, it goes hand in hand. And so I would be comfortable with the vice president going to the states like Arizona and Georgia and others that you mentioned, only if he see, feels comfortable. Hillary's campaign made the mistake of going to Arizona near the end rather than Wisconsin because they felt comfortable, and they ended up not winning either.
1: And, and does this play into your equation? There are two Senate seats in, open in Georgia, which is unusual. I mean, two Senate seats up and a Senate seat up in, in Arizona. Senate seat up in North Carolina as well, and what promises to be a close race. Are those reasons for Biden to at least try and make a play in those states? There are reasons to make a visit. I don't know if there are reasons to make a play.
2: And there's a distinction between the two. A play involves a lot of resources and investment, considerable time and energy in advertising, people on the ground and the like. And a visit means helping endorse
1: Brian, let, let me shift a little bit uh, with a question for you. When an incumbent president runs for re-election, the race is typically framed as a referendum on the incumbent. Will the 2020 presidential race be a referendum on President Trump? Is there a way for Trump to change that if that's not favorable for him? Given that his approval rating has been, as you mentioned, very steady, but below 50 percent isn't it imperative that he shift the spotlight to his opponent?
3: Well, I think he's uniquely capable of doing that. And I think, again, um, the playbook that we traditionally look to in presidential elections is, is not the one that President Trump um, is likely to employ. And so I think, you know, just as he was able to help frame the 2016 election as a referendum on Hillary Clinton, who is not an incumbent herself. um, I think he's capable of doing the same with Senator Biden. He and Clinton had very, uh, very low approval ratings and very high disapproval going into that election. And um, I just think that, you know, the standards we typically apply to these races don't apply to president Trump.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Now, let me ask you this in this 2020 campaign, there's no major third-party candidate. There's no Tulsi Gabbard. There's no Justin Amash. In 2016, third-party candidates got six percent of the national vote. That's the highest level of support since the days of Ross Perot. Which candidates helped more by the absence of well-known third-party candidates in 2020?
2: I would say that uh, Vice President Biden has slightly helped more, but it's only slightly. I mean, Secretary Clinton did lose those states you mentioned by about 100,000 votes combined, which was uh, slightly fewer votes than Jill Stein, a third-party candidate, procured in those same three states. So obviously it it damaged her. So that's why I give you the answer I do. But I really think this is going to be a massive turnout election, and the winner is going to be the one who gets his base out more than the other. And the the voters in the middle are going to split roughly 50-50. And so uh, it's going to be whether Biden can replicate the Obama coalition, and if he can, he'll win, or if it's more like 2016 or 2004, when John Kerry lost to George Bush, um, and the Republican base came out um, heavy and hard, then Trump
1: will win. Mm. And, and Brian, what about uh, the Bernie Sanders supporters? The Democratic primary process ended early, despite concerns that Democrats would go all the way to the to the convention with the nominee still, nomination still up for grabs. Did the Democrats gain some benefit in party unity with the process ending earlier? Will Donald Trump be able to make an appeal to Sanders supporters, either to win them over or to get them to stay home?
3: Well, Drew, you might recall that you and I had a conversation um, a couple of years ago where I thought that Bernie Sanders was the most formidable candidate the Democrats had um, going into this election. And I continue to think he would have been their strongest general election candidate. Um, I think he, like President Trump, is uniquely capable of motivating the most active elements of the Democratic base, and um, or many of the most active elements of the Democratic base, just as President Trump has shown himself capable of of doing. And so I think that, yeah, if if Bernie voters are able to migrate over to Hillary Clinton and show that kind of party unity that every party needs in order to succeed in a general election, that would, that would certainly be helpful. What remains to be seen is whether they will. And, um, you know, it, it, sort of initial observation of what's happening on the money side suggests that the Bernie voters are not as excited and eager to migrate over to the Biden camp as, as one would hope if you're a Democrat.
1: Brian, let me stick with you for, a, for just one more question. In 2016, the state's preferences in the presidential election and in Senate elections, where the states had Senate elections, aligned 100%. In other words, every state that went for Trump also went for a Republican for Senate. Trump is a controversial figure, but he appears to be more popular in some swing states than the incumbent senators who were up for re-election in those states in 2020. By which I mean, currently in the polls, he's running ahead of Republican incumbents in, for example, Arizona and North Carolina. Has something changed here to suggest this alignment will weaken or can we expect 100 percent alignment in the states again in 2020? Does candidate quality make a difference?
3: Candidate quality does make a difference um, universally. I think those polls also would show, if we looked a little closer, that a lot of the senators who won those races in states that the president won in won by a larger margin than the president did. I think that's one reflection of, of how candidates matter. And um, I, I'm not suggesting that you know we're going to see an exact replication, but it is the case that voters do tend to split their votes less frequently now. Than they once did, and so I think one of the reasons you have senators in both parties always closely aligning themselves with the incumbent president of their own party is precisely because of that, because of the one, um, the kind of no, the reduction in split voting, and the nationalization of so many issues these days.
1: Al, any thoughts about that alignment? One hundred percent in twenty sixteen, uh, maybe less than one hundred percent in twenty twenty. I think,
2: actually, it will end up being aligned. But let me just quickly go back to to your question about Bernie. Yes. Senator Sanders and Donald Trump both have an opinion that a lot of voters share, which is that everything's rigged, Washington stinks, and it's all against them, and that they alone can fix the problem. And Joe Biden needs to channel that if he wants to capture those voters and avoid the fate that Secretary Clinton had where they either voted, some of them voted for Trump, or some of them just didn't vote. Back to your question on the Senate races, you're right that the president is stronger, but that's because those candidates are weaker. Um, Martha McSally was appointed to the Senate seat. She didn't win the Senate seat. In fact, she recently lost that race against Kirsten Sinema. So candidates matter in Senate races. And I think that when we get down to the election, if President Trump ultimately wins re election, he might lose a seat or two. But if Joe Biden wins this election, the Democrats are likely to pick up the Senate or at least get it to 50-50, which means that they, in effect, picked up the Senate.
1: We're looking ahead to uh, Democratic and Republican conventions, which in the ordinary course would take place, of course, in person. And I know, Al, you're, you're a convention veteran. Brian, do we think Donald Trump will follow through on his threat to move the Republican convention? Out of North Carolina, I don't know um, what the latest thinking
3: is on the convention. I do think that the president um, would like to have you know as many people attend as is possible, given the obvious restrictions we want to maintain um, during the public health crisis. But I, I don't, I don't know whether it ends up there. I suspect it will stay there. Um, that would, that would be kind of my only comment on that, Drew.
1: Yeah. Al, what's lost if these conventions become virtual conventions or largely virtual conventions? Well, a couple of things.
2: Um, One of the biggest boosts a candidate can get is from a convention acceptance speech. It's also an opportunity for the candidate's vice presidential pick, which in this case will be only Joe Biden's pick, to introduce herself in this instance to the nation and, and give folks an opportunity to see what the ticket looks like. When you don't have that, and you don't have the adoring cheers of 18,000 people with the American flags and balloons and falling from the sky, you lose that momentum boost. In 1988, Mike Dukakis, who was the governor of Massachusetts, left the Atlanta Convention up 18 points over Vice President George Bush. He ended up losing, but that's an example of an extreme bounce you can get from a convention. A virtual convention may give a some bounce, but I'm thinking probably between zero and five points at most. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would add is that President Trump loves to give big speeches in front of his adoring supporters, and it energizes him and gives him support and comfort and confidence. And so if he's unable to do that, that will undermine him individually, sort of in terms of his persona. But I think, as Brian has stated, his approval rating has always been very constant, and so it's probably less likely to be in a, a bad
1: outcome for him. You know, Al, you just mentioned vice presidential prospects. Let, let's stay with that topic. There's been plenty of chatter about uh, Biden's possible VP choice. There always is. And commentators have been focused on female candidates, Stacey Abrams, Val Demings, Michelle Luan Grisham, Amy Klobuchar, Kamala Harris, Elizabeth Warren, Gretchen Whitmer. Did I cover all the finalists? Are there any names I should add to that list?
2: I think that um, Susan Rice is uh, potentially on the list. Representative Clyburn, who um, famously helped deliver South Carolina to the vice president, has urged the vice president to consider Mayor Bottoms from Atlanta, whose national prominence is growing rapidly, both in in terms of how she has addressed the coronavirus response in her city um, and also how she is addressing the violence and protests that are currently going on around America. So I think you, I would add those two to the list.
1: Um, the one candidate I don't hear mentioned now is Terry Sewell, who is a House member from Alabama. She, as it happens, went to Oxford with Susan Rice and to Harvard Law School, as I recall, with Obama. Um, her name never comes up. But I'm wondering if she's a candidate as as well. She certainly seems to be in the same range, at least when you're looking at House members like Val Demings. I think uh, Sewell's even more experienced. I never hear her name mentioned.
2: She would be great, um, but I haven't heard her on the list. I haven't seen any evidence of her being vetted. But, you know, the vice president has said he's looking at a lot of people, and there are folks that no one thought was on the list. For example, Jean Shaheen of New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan of New Hampshire, who have been looked at that are not being reported in the media. So she certainly could be under
1: consideration. Clients, friends keep asking me who I think is going to be the nominee. And I keep telling them that I, I've been trying since 1980 and have never guessed this correctly. <laughs> have you had any better luck than I have? I know we're experts, but somehow there's an X factor that comes in in the middle of the night before this election is made. And we can't always see what that is. So
2: I would say this. I think that Joe Biden is a very visceral politician and he will go with someone. He has to go with someone he feels viscerally comfortable with. So he's not going to check a box or fit a stereotype or listen to consultants or follow polls. They may influence him, but he's going to go with someone he's fundamentally comfortable with, and so when you think about his personality, his empathy, how he leads with his heart and his on his sleeve, look for someone like that to satisfy that urge. And I think you'll find your short list of candidates. Prior to the unrest, I think Amy Klobuchar fit that bill. That's now harder for her, but I think she's still in the mix.
1: Sure, Brian, you've heard that list of names, and I know you're familiar with with all of those possibilities. Which of them? really, would you say, strikes terror into your heart as a Republican? (laughs) Be honest. Well, just a couple of points. One,
3: I I was interested to to hear the resume that you kind of ticked off on Congressman Sewell. I think it's, it's a mistake to assume that educational pedigree equals political, you know, success. And I think Quite the contrary, in this political moment, one of the things that I think is appealing about Mayor Bottoms, other than the fact that she broke through the noise and, and all the commentary the other day in a really powerful way that I think gripped the attention of people across the political spectrum, is the fact that she does not have a pedigree like that. She does not, as far as I know, have an Ivy League degree in her background. And I think that that's actually a benefit. And, um, I think would make her more appealing, in my view, to the vast majority of voters whose votes you're hoping to get, than than people who do. I'm not discounting the promise or the the talent of other people, but just think that that in this political moment could actually be a benefit. You know, I think just kind of as an outside observer to Democratic politics, that I, I would I would I would be very strongly inclined to go with whoever um, Congressman Clyburn would would want me to go with, because as Al said, and most people have observed. I think Vice President Biden has a lot to uh, thank Congressman Clyburn for in terms of the position he's in right now. So, if I were giving advice, I'm not being asked for advice, but I would be very um, interested in what Congressman Clyburn thinks about the VP pick. Objectively speaking, I think you know Senator Harris is uh, somebody who's you know run a national race now, has won statewide has an impressive pedigree. And, um, you know, just sort of among the candidates whose names I've heard, other than the caveats that, and, the, and the observations I've just made, she strikes me as somebody who, who would be at the top of,
1: of most lists. And do we believe that the Trump-Pence ticket is going to be unchanged in the 2020 election? Yes. I, I was looking to create a controversy <laughs> here at the end of the podcast. No, nope. Fellas, one other thing, a, a wild card question. Brian, we'll start with you if you don't mind. Um, politically, very hard to evaluate the current crisis. And, and of course, there's a lot more at stake here than just politics um, in terms of, of our country and where we go next. But any thoughts about how this will play politically? For the benefit of listeners... We're recording this podcast the morning after the president gave his speech at St. John's Church or made his appearance at St. John's Church across the street from the White House.
3: Yeah, it's impossible to say how it will play politically. But I do think, um, you know, there is clear recognition among both parties that the injustices that are evidenced in in police brutality that we've seen um, recently and in recent months and years is something that is real and, um, you know, is something where, you know, where injustice is done, justice needs to be served. And so I think both parties acknowledge that that reality and politically will speak to it. I also think there's uh, another aspect of this, which goes beyond that, which both parties are kind of grappling and struggling with how to disentangle the, those issues. Um, and we'll see emerge here uh, some kind of a consensus, I think, in both parties as to how to do that. And then we'll see, you know, politically, which, which way of, of dealing with, with both sides of this fall politically. But I think to sort of end it on a, a positive note, um, to the extent that it is possible to find positive news these days, I, I do think that there is general agreement consensus about injustices and, and a history of injustices, and the importance and the need as a country to, to kind of face them together.
1: Well said, Al. Any last thoughts on the current crisis? I would say that it's going to absolutely
2: impact the election, although I'm not sure how. Uh, voters ultimately, when they go to the ballot box, want to pick somebody who is aspirational, positive, and promises a better future. And both of these candidates are going to struggle to do so in wake of what's happened. I do think the president is going a little bit to an older Republican playbook. You saw it in 1968 with Richard Nixon, in 1988 with George Bush, sort of the law and order man. And um, that has worked in the past. And I'm not sure it works now, but we, time will tell. And, and this is a very unique time in American history. And I would just add, it's not just what's going on in our streets. It's 40 million plus unemployed. And so that is the largest number since the Great Depression, and it's a number that's going to grow. So which candidate can appeal to folks and make them feel safe and feel comfortable that the future will be better with him, that's the one who's going to
1: win. Very thoughtful answers, fellas. Thank you. I suspect we'll be revisiting some of these issues in future podcasts as Election Day approaches, and I hope you'll both be uh, available to talk. This has been another Brownstein podcast on the presidential race in 2020. Thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.